Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Yasmin Abdel-Majid. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling, help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never reached in Australia. Yasmin Abdel-Majid is a Sudanese-Australian writer, broadcaster and social advocate. She trained as a mechanical engineer and has worked on oil and gas rigs around Australia before becoming a writer and broadcaster. Yasmin has published a memoir, Yasmin's Story, as well as a book for younger readers, You Must Be Layla. And today she's joining me with her YA follow-up, Listen, Layla. Now, Layla is an inventor. After winning a scholarship to an exclusive school, she's now preparing for the Grand Designs Turismo, which will take her to Germany and working her hardest to win a place on the special international invention tour. But Layla's plans for conquering the world with her inventions hit a hurdle when her family must travel to Sudan to be at her grandmother's bedside. The trip challenges Layla to discover who she is beyond the world of her inventor's workshop. Now, Yasmin and I had a great chat that lasted the better part of an hour. So I've split this episode up into two parts so that you can listen to it at your leisure. In part one, Yasmin and I introduce the character of Layla and we explore a little bit about her understanding of the world and her experience of the world and the way structural racism and acts of racism impact her life, even as a young girl. Join me as we discover Yasmin Abdel-Majid's Listen, Layla. Hello. Are we connected to audio? Hey, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. How are you doing? I am very good, Yasmin. Good morning. And good evening. Good morning. Good evening to you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, look, this is uh, this is so fantastic. I I quite often you have to decide on a book if like I decide on a book that I want to interview about before I've read it. So when Tiana first asked me, um, oh, can you send through some questions? I'm like, well, like I'm still reading the book, and I think I I, I think my initial ideas that I put to you were very broadly generic YA type questions. You know, I really wanted to look at representation. I mean, it's not that I don't honestly believe in those ideas. And then I got into it and I was like, okay, this, this story's got some stuff going on. And thank you. And I appreciate you saying that there's a lot in it because I think that's, um, that was kind of my intention. I wanted to write, I think on the face of it, you know, uh, people might pick it up and be like, oh, it's, you know, a, a book for, young teens like it'll be a nice fun read or whatever but i i hope to sort of get into some meaty stuff or at least you know introduce the readers to to thinking about different things and i don't necessarily give them answers but at least get them thinking about it i mean how did you this is not a this is a question that would would fit in the interview if it were a different interview but I don't go. I don't go as much into style. But did you mm. consciously work on a style that would would pitch to a certain sort of age demographic, or did you just kind of write it and let that that happen? Because you must be late. So the first book was fairly pit, like pretty pitched at that kind of 
lead is 13. And so you kind of writing for an audience slightly younger, so like 12, 11, maybe an old, like a mature 10 year old. And then with this one, I, I knew that I wanted to kind of like get into more complex topics, but I also wanted it to be accessible because I suppose the reference I have for that kind of age group style is like the books that I read when I was in grade eight and nine kind of like shaped my whole adolescence really even though they were like fantasy books you know and like Alex Reiner and Tamora Pierce and whatever they really like I think they I I so strongly related to the and so I, I knew that I wanted to kind of hit that age group it's quite a specific age group and and it you know and it's it, it's um it's one where I'm maybe I'm accustomed to speaking to from like doing lots of stuff with schools and that mm. kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I suppose what it is, it's also like, it's like the inner child in me, right? It's like mm. the, the very lame jokes and the kind of corny earnestness. So it also lets me be a little bit more earnest um, than maybe my friends let me be. Awesome. <laughs> and what about dealing with the issues? Did you, did you find you had to temper any of your own kind of analysis to, to get this, keep the story going? Or was, was that also something that you could just let flow? I definitely, um, I knew that I wanted to kind of to tackle them pretty uh, pretty head on. Um, I think maybe the way that I, I wouldn't say tempered it, but the way that I thought about it for this age group was how do I, I think what it was was about what are the questions you're going to be asking at that age um, that are going to introduce you to those topics, right? Because I don't want to like hit a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old over the head with like this is structural racism because that's not how you think when you're that age and most people never get there right like that might not be where most people get to but you can certainly start them being curious about how things are in the world um and also it took a couple of drafts to get the right tone i think that like for initially um my first draft was very much just like issues, 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 this was happening in Sudan. Um, and a friend of mine sort of read it and was like, hmm, um, would the character Layla, how would that character actually respond to these situations? Like, if you, were, if you were true to the character, how would they respond in those situations? And I think asking that, that question allowed me to sort of be like, oh, okay, these, this is what she's going to be curious about. Mm. Um, this is where her mind's going to go. These are the questions she doesn't have the answer to, but is it will ask herself and will ask the people around her. Um, and so I think that was kind of the way that I went. But I'm not sure if these are that, uh, if the, the answers are that helpful. But, um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the process I went through. And also, it's, it's, much, it's quite different to the first book because the first book was a very kind of like straightforward narrative. And I knew what that arc was going to be before I started. But with this one, I had like plot points. I knew I wanted her to go to Sudan. I knew I wanted her to be involved in the um, revolution. And I knew I wanted her cousin to get shot because my cousin was shot and killed. Ma'ab was shot and killed in the protest. And so I wanted to kind of honor his life through mm. the story as well. Um, and so I had those plot points. and But I wasn't sure what her emotional arc was going to be until I got into into the story. Oh, that is awesome. That is so fascinating. Um, 
what I'm going to do, I'm going to give us uh, like an intro. When I, when I do my interviews, I kind of do a little bit of a radio intro to get a bit of energy. Before I do that, though, I want to just reconfirm how I am pronouncing your surname because I have heard it pronounced. I, I can do a phonetic, but I, I, I would prefer to hear it from you first. No, it's, um, it's, my surname is Abdul Majid. Abdul Majid. Fantastic. And... Do you know what, please, uh, just out of curiosity, can you pr- pronounce your first name for me? Because I feel like I might be putting stresses in the wrong place. That's right. Everyone in Australia says Yasmin, but um, Yasmin or Yasmin would be better. Okay, fantastic. Okay, I've been I've been repressing the urge to put too much emphasis on that sort of double S at the, in the first syllable. So, Yasmin. Go for it. Go fantastic. for it. Fantastic. Awesome. Because I think I've only started really uh, using that version of my name since I've left Australia. So I think it's a little confusing for people, but I'm like, you know what? You can handle it. There's, there's, people can handle it. It's, yeah, look, I I think that's, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm as cis whitey white as you get in Australia, but I have a surname that people always pronounce and mispronounce, and this has been a thing my yeah. entire life, so... I can't imagine what it would be like if if you have a, a name that ever dares to you know just be different or or to be something that people think they know but in fact isn't. So I'm sure you probably have you know gotten Jasmine half your life as well because that's what people know. People people send me Jasmine and I'm like I I don't know where the Jasmine comes from and I I actually distinctly remember the day I went from being Yasmin to Yasmin. And kind of like, I was, I remember because I was 11 and I was on the phone with a telemarketer. She was like, what's your name? And I was like, Yasmin. And she was like, what? I was like, Yasmin. She was like, it's me. I was like, no, Yasmin. And then I was like, Yasmin. She was like, oh, why didn't you say Yasmin? And then I was like, well, I guess my name is Yasmin now. Oh, no. All right. Let's, okay, yes. let's talk. Let's, let's talk books. Here we go. I am joined right now via Zoom from the UK by Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining. Uh, we've already had a great chat, but I, oh, you've got a fantastic book that we're going to enjoy chatting about now. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. Let me introduce you to people who... Um, who are not familiar, Yasmin is a Sudanese-Australian writer, broadcaster and social advocate. She trained as a mechanical engineer and worked on oil and gas rigs around Australia for years before becoming a writer and a broadcaster. Yasmin has published a memoir, Yasmin's Story, as well as a book for younger readers, You Must Be Layla. We are now going to be talking about the second book in that series, Listen, Layla. Now, look, About now, Yasmin, I would throw into a synopsis of the story that we're going to discuss. But your heroine, Layla, was, as I've just mentioned, first introduced in in You Must Be Layla. There's a whole backstory for readers to discover. So before we get into Listen, Layla, can you introduce Layla Hussein? I would love to. So Layla Hussein is uh, partly everything I wished I was when I was a 13, 14-year-old. She's a... Sudanese, Australian, growing up in Brisbane. She's a ball of energy. She's constantly chatting to God like he's, you know, uh, the invisible best friend and being like, why did this happen? Um, she loves inventing things. And in You Must Be Layla, all she wants to do is to be a grand adventurer. Now, that's not a real job title, no, but that's what the, that's the kind of thing you want to do at 13. You want to adventure all around the world. When we meet her and listen, Layla, she has spent a year at a fancy private school where she got um, she got a scholarship and, and you can learn all about that and you must be later. 
But when we meet her at the beginning of Listen, Layla, she is finished the first year at her fancy private school. And she's decided that what she wants to be is a world-class inventor. So she loves science and tech and engineering and making things and solving problems. Um, and she's part of what's called the Grand Design Turismo team. So it's like an invention team and there's a massive competition. They've won the national title. They're off to go to the international competition. Um, and that, that's where we pick up the story. So central to Layla's character, as well as the story in Listen, Layla, is that creative mind that she fosters and revels in. Her inventive spirit, that participation in the Grand Designs Turismo, her participation in STEM, it's, it's still, in this country as it is around the world, a highly gendered issue. Female students report less interest and less confidence in STEM subjects, and this flows on to lower tertiary and workplace participation in STEM. And we've probably let people know STEM is science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics, right? Bang on, yeah. We know this isn't related to aptitude or intelligence. This is not a matter of, you know, one group being better than the other by some sort of, you know, biological design. What was important for you in depicting Layla as an inventor? So I think what's super interesting, what you point out is that, like, we know that young girls or girls sort of report less interest and so on in math and, and STEM subjects. But the other thing the research shows is that doesn't happen until like a couple of years into schooling. And so we know that when when girls and are very, very young or, you know, people of all genders, there's no kind of, there's no gendering to, um, to any subject. And I grew up very fortunately with a family of people who love science and engineering, right? And so I didn't realize that uh, engineering or science or or any of these sorts of subjects were gendered really until I probably um, started high school actually, and by that point I was very committed to the to the role of of being a, a lover of science. And so what I wanted to do with Layla was to reflect that kind of very earnest and wholehearted, full throated love of science and and engineering, and 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 not actually frame it in a way that is really jargony and frame it in a way that's really elitist. Cause sometimes I think, you know, we can, we have like chess champions and these geniuses mm. who can like do a bazillion equations in their head without at the age of eight. And it's like, well, no, actually for me, the love of science was just about the love of solving problems and the love of figuring things out. And that too is science and that too is engineering. And so by kind of um, having Layla be an inventor, which is also maybe a framing that people haven't necessarily engaged with before. It's it's about all these subjects, but in a um, maybe an innocent or an exciting kind of way. Um, I could introduce people, especially um, young girls, to this world in a way that they could resonate with and maybe get excited about. That exceptionalist narrative that you just mentioned there too, it's such a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, I know, like I watched, I loved The Queen's Gambit, and I've noticed right. it at one of the high schools where I, I work for my job, suddenly really prominently as I'm signing in, there's, there's these big signs for the, the chess club, which never existed. But it can also be very hard for people who, who see this exceptionalist narrative and realise that that might never be them. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I love all things STEM. And I'm never going to be the chick from the Queen's Gambit. Like that's just my, my that's just not how my brain my brain works. And 
you know, everyone who does, you know, engineering or similar knows one or two people in their course or in their class or like that who don't have to work that hard and who can just, um, their brains are incredible. But also I think in the same way, for me, what I, what I wanted to also share in the same way that we are trying to, I think, in, in many parts of society, democratize the idea of creativity, I kind of want to democratize the space of STEM as well because it's so relevant to all of our lives and also it's so empowering. If you feel like you can fix problems around you, if you feel like the technology that you use is not like a magic box, but it's something you understand, you have a lot more like power as an individual to make informed choices and to design the life that you want. I think that's super important to, to show to young people from a really early age. Now, those um, those statistics that I mentioned before, they were from the Australian Government of Department, Australian Government Department of Industry, Science and Resources. And one thing that really jumped out at me was the 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 areas around interest and confidence. And you've you've addressed them and how they start to appear later in education. And it got me thinking about sort of a holistic view of these issues. Because I'm I'm in an opposite position in my work. I'm a speech pathologist and internationally. Males represent about uh, 5% of that profession. And there's a whole lot of lenses that can be put on that, but broadly so-called, I'm going to put scare quotes because radio is so visual, uh, caring professions don't attract males. Do Do you get the sense that addressing this is a holistic issue, that we have to break down gendered stereotypes across areas and, and tap into some of that passion that Layla has? Oh, 100%. And um, it's interesting, actually, that you say that because I'm in the process of adapting uh, these stories to screen. And we were discussing um, we were discussing the different characters and how we wanted to flesh them out for the screen and so on. And Seb, Sebastian, who is one of Layla's really good friends at school, um, we were kind of thinking, we were rounding out his character a little bit. And this is, you know, in the writing room and... and we're kind of talking about how we would love him to actually be a much more caring young man um, because that's something that you don't really see. And, and we didn't want that to be associated with his sexuality or, you know, questions about gender. Cause I think what tends to happen is the moment that you start to say, Oh, this is a young boy who's caring. There are a whole bunch of other assumptions that come with it. And that's, that's kind of not the point. The point is to be able to give the space for folks of all genders to be able to um, participate in, be okay with, be uh, celebrated, be encouraged to follow whatever passion they have, whether that is caring for others, whether that is inventing things, whether that is, and I think you're right. I think um, we're never going to be able to fix the problem of, uh, you know, quote unquote, women's equality in the workplace if the caring responsibilities fall on like women and non-binary folks. and we're never going to be able to do that unless men aren't seen as quote unquote lesser for taking on caring roles as the kind of like hyper masculine, toxic masculinity um, stereotype would have us believe. And so the thing that you point to oh, reminds me of something that I often have heard, um, which is we always talk about women in STEM, but we never talk about men in caring roles and they're like the different sides of the same coin. So 100%. And you know, I'd love to see more stories about those kind of uh, male characters as well. I think that would be gorgeous. 
Well, I, I absolutely have to thank you because in preparing for this interview, you threw me down this really interesting rabbit hole researching my own profession and learning some really interesting stuff about how um, how a lot of these stereotypes and gendered ideas kind of come back to the world emerging into the Industrial Revolution and the way the professions were shaped. And let's not go too far down that rabbit hole, though. Capitalism, because I'm here. I'm here to talk about neoliberalism, but, but we're going to focus on this and Layla. We're going to focus on this and Layla. Now, throughout the novel, you depict incidents of casual or maybe we'll call them less overt racism. Moments like Layla's brother very early on in the book, he's going for job interviews or he's trying to get a job and he's having trouble actually just getting a face to face with someone. You also describe Layla's trepidation and this sort of situational awareness that. In the scene, in the scene, we are very much in her head. The situational awareness of the potential for a racist incident as she catches the bus. Why was it important to bring to light, particularly these more covert acts and their consequences? Consequences like Layla having to be kind of hyper alert. Hmm, it's a great question, Andrew. And I think um, so. If any, if, if people have read the first book. If you haven't in the first book, I'm going to spoil it for you. What, one of the things that I do in the first book is it's, it's um, hinged on a very overt act of racism where a couple of very overt acts where um, Peter, who's the chairman's son, the school chairman's son, you know, says some really awful things to Layla, some quite racist and Islamophobic things, and, and Layla reacts. Um, but the reality is that the kind of the discomfort and the... Um, the, the sort of place that you feel in, in a social hierarchy or the way that you move through the world as somebody who's racialized, as somebody who has a hijab, um, it's not always about those massive moments uh, or the, those sort of very obvious, the kind of moments we might associate with like um, the 70s or, or like the idea of like quite, um, you can point to it and you can be like, that thing is racist, that thing is a bad thing. We, you know, the reality is that a lot of the experiences today are about being aware of the potential of those sorts of things or even going through the world in a way where you're like, is this about race or is it not about race? I will never be able to prove it, but it certainly feels racialized. And if enough of those things happen, you start to notice a trend, right? And I wanted to kind of show it from the perspective of Layla and her family and everyone in her family experiences it in a different way because I wanted to show how normalized it was as well. It wasn't as if like these were like huge things that were happening. It was just like, oh yeah, we can't get a job interview or like, oh yeah, I'm worried about whether this person's going to yell at me on the bus because of how I look. Oh sweet. He's not going to, it's fine. I'll just lower my heart rate. Um, but that's kind of how you just move through the world. And, and hopefully that helps. Um, you know, it's a small moment of, for people to have some empathy and for people to kind of, get an insight into what it's like um, because because I think what folks are often looking for is the proof. They want the evidence. They want the, what is the, they want your trauma. What, when have you been yelled at? Like when, mm. when was this really, when did it happen to you? And you're like, well, it's not, it's not only about those moments. It's about a lifetime of being racialized and a lifetime of being hyper alert and aware. And I mean, there is, there are studies that show in the United States, for example, and I'm like, can almost guarantee the same would apply in Australia of like people of color, black people in particular 
um, their lives are shortened because they live with like higher levels of stress throughout their lives because of anticipation of moments like this. It sounds like, I mean, look, I, I reflect on what you're saying, what I, what I read in Listen, Layla, but also in, in just my, my own broad experience. And I get the impression that dominant culture, white culture in, in Australia, in America, in the UK, particularly where, where you're talking to me from, it's heavily invested in that narrative of the the over-the-top violent incident, the shouting incident, because it can then pin those incidents that it, it, that it codes as racist on bad actors. Mm-hmm. And that allows individuals to say, I'm not a bad actor, there go, ergo, I'm not racist. And I liked the way you exposed the smaller covert incidents, because, I mean, if we want to get people thinking about structural racism or just even the way these structures might work, we have to understand that if the structures are in place, if they're doing their job, you don't need the big incidents. Everyone gets to walk around being covertly racist every single day because we built the thing and it works, which is like, it's a really horrible analogy to make, but it seems like that's what's happening. You're 100% correct. And and, And that is, that requires people to shift the way they think about what racism is. And you're totally right. We're taught that racism is something. Even I was taught that racism is something. I remember when I was young, I was like, oh, no, people only yell at me occasionally. I don't experience that much racism, right? Mm -hmm. And that was because that was my understanding of what racism was. It was over. And my dad also, you know, spent time in the UK in the 70s and 80s. And he was like, you know, the kind people like black men were were being beaten up in the street and people were just walking past, you know, so, so like in my head, that's what racism was. But once we start to understand that actually what it is, is entire, it is entire systems and what, what system means are like norms, how we, how we think of what is normal, how we create um, institutions and what are the kind of overt and covert things we accept in the institutions and who that benefits and who that doesn't. I mean, uh, the the analogies, you know, the fish don't sit around being like, how good is this water? Mm. Because everyone's swimming in the same water. And it's the same in, in these um, countries where white supremacy exists and where you're built on a basis of whiteness. Um, you don't talk, like, unless you are awake to it, you don't talk about the whiteness all the time because that's just how it is. We don't talk about the air all the time because that's just how it is. But once you start to become aware of it, that's when you start to realize, okay, as an individual, if I'm not actively working against this, I'm kind of participating in it. Um, and it's a bit exhausting, I know, but that's that's why um, structures are really powerful and self-sustaining, right? Because it's exhausting to take it down. All right. So I had a question about Peter that I need to completely flip because you've. We're, I'm changing my thinking about this now. Peter Inlis and Layla he gets away with some pretty flagrant racist behavior, but it would follow then. I mean, he's the principal son. It's a, you know, pretty exclusive school. And that, that is the structural um, system that we see. And I mean, I want to be really careful what I say here because of, you know, things that you're probably aware of ongoing in Australia, but we see systems where powerful people, privileged people have the opportunity to get away with stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that Peter is being uh, just the most overtly racist person. He he sits in a position where he knows, well, that's it. I can get away with it. 
100%. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how I wanted to represent Peter in the book and how I wanted to represent Layla's relationship to Peter in the book because I, what I really did not want to do was have Layla somehow um, be like an apologist for his behavior or let him let him get away or like or capitulate to the system, right? Like I wanted her to find a sense of agency within what was like a world and a setup and a team and you know a te- her Peter's her team leader, um, but also it's really hard to do, mm. right? It's hard It's hard for a, a young black Muslim girl um, to stand up or not even to stand up because she did stand up. It's hard for her to um, win in that system. Mm. So the question I had is, what does a win for her look like? And that is not necessarily the same as like what a win overall looks like. It, for me, is how do I get Leila to stay true to herself and her faith and her values um, and still get something out of the situation, but also acknowledge the fact that quite often the powerful white guys do get away with it. And 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 if this was a book that was going to ask young kids and young readers to reflect on the world, I couldn't. It wouldn't be. Um, I I couldn't stray that far from the truth and say that you know Peter was going to um, yeah, like really pay for what happens because that's not really how it works, is it? Sadly. But- it's so and it's so tough to read because I think a little part like a, a reader and I know that the people that are going to pick up Listen Layla are going to be readers in the sense that they they understand and that, that parts of this feel like we feel like we're on maybe that kind of hero quest t- type of journey in which case Layla should defeat Peter like and that's that's a narrative that we we do have to escape because it does tend to privilege uh, dominant culture, um, dominant culture individuals. I mean, look at look at a lot of the classic heroes or the way they're coded. I guess I think maybe I'll say one thing before we move on mm. to another part of the story because I think people might be listening to this and thinking, "Wow, this is this is really heavy." Is this? Are we sure this is YA? And I mean, I, I say this a lot on the show. This is YA. Like this is young adult, and it's it deals with amazing things, and it. It has young adult protagonists, but it deals with issues that we all need to get our head around. So, for people that are listening and going, this is heavy stuff, I'm like, yes, it is. Pick up this book. <laughs> That's it for part one of my great conversation with Yasmin Abdelmajid. Yasmin's debut novel, Listen Layla, is out now from Penguin. And make sure you keep an eye on the podcast for part two of that conversation where Yasmin and I get into Layla's trip to Sudan and the activism, the her experience of the Sudanese protests. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundangara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, well, it means you will get part two of this conversation and you'll get a new conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Happy reading.